Good evening, everybody. I have the great privilege and honor to be with one of my dearest friends who happens to also be, well, actually, well, Denny Weinberg. You're a member of our congregation, but more than a member, you're also an ordained minister right here in the congregation. (laughs) Uh, We've been together for well over 10 years. Yeah. Uh, Together, we started uh, Little Oak School. And um, you were with us over at Skyline, Lavery. You're here with us now at Villas Brisas. And not only is he an ordained minister uh, in the fellowship, he's also the, well, I'm gonna, I'll, I'll get to that part. You were the co-founder of WellPoint Healthcare to begin with. And, and then uh, you were also the inventor here in California, the PPO. Yeah. Uh, what does PPO stand for? So people know. Well, orig- preferred po- uh, provider organizations, what the initials stand for. But this was the first legal way that uh, health insurance prices could be lowered if you choose to go to a lower priced, you know, uh, doctor or hospital that's in network. That didn't yeah. exist before that. Yeah. And so he's, he's been in the healthcare industry. And now, I, I'm not going to tell my old yard, but, but you look my age, but I know you're a little older. <laughs> yeah, no, but, but, but I could be your is, dad. Oh, come on. But the, the coolest thing is, uh, you know, you just finished your run with Hicksme, which was another startup company, healthcare oriented. And now you, uh, you know, you try to get out. It's like the mafia. They keep bringing you back in. You're now the CEO of another company. And, and I will have to dance around this. He's the CEO of another company of one of the largest uh, tech companies in the world. In the world. How's that? Yeah, that's good. Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of cryptic. And it's, you well, know, but, it's. But let me, yeah, let me do this. Yeah. And, and, and keeping it cryptic, the cool thing is if we do that, we can really go deep tonight in, in regards to talking about that. Because healthcare, it's a major issue in this election, and we're just a handful of days away. Talk, and, and not only do we have to talk about that tonight, I, I want everyone to know about our friendship, some of the stuff you've, you've observed, because you have an unbelievable ability to articulate and assess, and that's why people bring you in. You're kind of a fixer. Um, and, and just the things you've observed in the fellowship and the progression over the years, you can give some people a background, especially people who are joining us for the first time on our live stream and folks that want to know what this church is about. I can't think of a better person to describe it. So <laughs> run, Denny. What do you got? Well, thanks for having, uh, having me join you, Rob. I, have, I think it's probably been 15 years. And, you know, I came to the little fellowship in Skyline mostly because I was escaping a, um, a real traumatic experience in the church. Yeah. And it's one that's been healed in the community since, but it was very difficult for me because I was very close to a, a wonderful founding pastor of a big church who basically got kicked out by his own fellowship. And, uh, and there, was, there was a lot of, um, there was a lot of uh, challenge and trials for that church after that. And, and we really um, met you in the middle of all that. It was this tiny little fellowship. It was yeah, new. The little A-frame. Yeah. But you know, everything about that was wonderful because it, it allowed us to rediscover um, Jesus rediscovered the church in a very small, personal uh, way. And I remember the day I met you, the day I was introduced to you. And, you know, you, you haven't changed a bit in all that time. <laughs> I mean, it's true. You haven't changed a bit. You're very, you're the same human, genuine, you know, eye-to-eye, you know, uh, you know, starry-eyed, you know, big ambition guy that you were when I met you. And that's what makes you so neat. Oh. That's sweet. I mean, coming from you, Denny, that's like, I don't know how folks out there feel, but that's a compliment. I'm really <laughs> blessed by it. I mean, because I, I, I look at you as that starry eye. There's nothing you, you wouldn't take on. I mean, you're, you're an entrepreneur. Uh, you, you've been on the board of many major corporations, Dole Foods, Salem. Um, I mean, you, you, you run with some, some pretty big dogs in the industry. 
and I, I just, I'm taken aback by the compliment. So thank you. You're welcome. It's, but it's, it's been a great, it's been a great life together, really. Yeah, and, yeah. and, you know, I've learned a lot about um, making my uh, Christian walk authentic from you. That's a, that's a good place for us to go because a lot of folks don't realize, sitting across from me, yeah, a believer, a titan in industry, but more than that, you, you, weren't, you weren't always, you weren't raised in a Christian home. No, I wasn't. I mean, you, 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 you had a hardcore Jewish liberal background. I did. Um, Allison, Allie, uh, she was instrumental in leading you to the Lord. Right. And uh, you were in a rock band. Uh, yeah, I, I, was mean, a, I was a 1960s hippie rock and roll musician in college, very liberal uh, from a uh, humanistic Jewish family, right? Uh, I, what I grew up believing is that, you know, Christians, what I thought were Christians were people who wanted to, you know, throw, you know, put me in a gas chamber. I mean, that's really how I grew up in a very, you know, isolated community. So, you know, I, I met Jesus at, at 40 years old, a consequence of, you know, uh, being introduced to my wife. I had a failed marriage before that and some good friends introduced us they walked with us together as couple yeah as, as, as a growing couple and he ended up then finally you know uh, uh, officiating our wedding together and in that whole process I I became a believer and it was you know given where I came from it was um, it was huge because I was um, betraying every uh, every element of my past yeah and, and did, did your family reconcile in regards to that? Did oh, they yeah. ever took, come to terms with it? Took, took many years and, you know, it was one at a time. I, um, some of them, yes or no, it doesn't much matter now. It's, what, what's, what was important is that I was with my dad explaining who I was, that I was telling thousands of people in big, you know, meetings and things, and I'd never been able to share with him privately. And I, you know, I finally had to say, listen, you, you need to know your son, yeah. right? You got to know your son. Strangers know me better than you do. And that was wonderful. And then it, when, when in his dying, you know, hours, um, I was able to witness to him, wow. you know, and, and I remembered what you said, that hearing is the last thing that went. And he, all he could do is hear at that point. And I just, with all my family around, I was able Amen. to just go right up to his ear, read scripture to him, tell him about who his Messiah was and why, that he shouldn't be ashamed to own that, that, that there's nobody to judge him now. Amen. It was a great, it was a great moment. And that, that, that wouldn't have happened. That couldn't have happened. Uh, our mutual friend David Lane uh, had a great relationship with Ralph Hallow, who his wife Millie was on the board of the NRA, might, might still be, but he was the chief political writer for the Washington Times. He just recently passed. The surgery went bad, and he ended up, I, I don't know exactly how he died, but I know it was complications of a surgery. And, and he, he was, you know, a hardcore, I'm not doing the Christian thing, and the only person he'd listened to was David Lane. And <laughs> He was kind to me, and I had conversations with him, and I talked to him about the Lord. But the fascinating thing about Ralph is the only person, that, and, and Millie knew, I can't bring the chaplain in, and Millie knows the Lord, but she put the phone up to David. And, and I, I went to bed that night because I think, as you were describing your dad, one of the most holy moments in a person's life is when they're a captive audience. Yeah. As you linger between the earth and eternity, um, the Lord brings to remembrance everything pertaining to what he's been trying to show you between your, your birth and your death when he's trying to reconcile you to himself. He brings to remembrance everything. And you hear that voice. And, and of course, in my estimation, David Lane's voice was preeminent in that recollection, that holy moment in, in Ralph's life. 
and I had written out that little statement, sent it to David and also to Millie, and then Governor Huckabee responded by just saying, you know, that the articulating of that really ministered. And I, and I, cause I still, I, I believe that anytime you see like the secular left wanting to enact euthanasia, um, you know, where they, they say it's hum, humane. What I've seen as a minister is that's the worst thing because that's where people are most. Oh, you're taking that away from yeah, them. You're, you're taking away this opportunity to reconcile to God. Yeah. So yeah, I, I'm, I'm glad that that. I, I had a sense with my dad that that's what was happening. I could tell it. I could yeah. sense it. And as you were <clears throat> as you were talking about it, it also reminded me of my own, um, the moment when I accepted Jesus. And because um, I'd been really, I, I, it was up until that point, it's the first time I ever read the Old Testament was because I was being led by a Christian to read my own <laughs> old Bible. That, yeah. And because there's huge sections of it I would have never seen, I would have never been permitted to see, and it's not made available. But I remember at that moment when I, when I met the Lord, I had that experience of all of the moments in my life all at once where he had nudged me. And they all, all of a sudden, they all connected together. People I'd run into, um, you know, people that I saw up on soapboxes that I cursed. I mean, all that stuff, yeah. right? And suddenly it was all in front of me, and it, wow. and it was like, ah, I see it. It just came boom like that. Like that. I, I, I knew you before I knew you. <laughs> and, and, and I'm not talking as the Lord. I'm talking as Rob McCoy. I knew Denny Weinberg before I knew Denny Weinberg because you and Ali's, uh, you, you, were, you were very beneficent. You, you, were, you were generous. Uh, and I, I worked with the, the Crisis Pregnancy Center here in town. And everyone would do a fundraiser and your names would come up. You know, and it was almost like, let's hit up the Weinbergs. Let's hit up the Weinbergs. And I kept thinking, who are these people? And why do people keep whipping them to death? You know, and it was, it was odd to me. Uh, and then, you know, you end up in our fellowship. And I'm thinking, why are they here? At the time, we probably had 200 people, maybe, a little A-frame church. And you had left a big, giant church during a, a great crisis. And, I, and, and like you said, they have reconciled. Mm-hmm. And, and they really, the, uh, we can say, yeah. Sean Thornton and Calvary Community reconciled, taking care of Larry DeWitt. Yeah. That's, a, that's, a, that's a top-notch guy, uh, yeah, Sean Thornton. Yeah, and really, uh, Calvary Community's done a remarkable job in caring for what I consider to be one of the bishops of the valley, Larry DeWitt. And you and I have a love for yeah. him. And yeah. they, they finally made right, and I'm thrilled. But, but you guys all came over, and I'm thinking, they're going to stay here until that mess fix, and they're going to head out. But we uniquely got knitted together, and, and I kind of came into your life when it wasn't, you, you weren't flush with the, the wealth that everyone had spoken of. Not to say that you were broke, but, you know, this is a time you, you and Allie were getting ready to call it quits and retire and, yep. you know, dial it down. And, and, and we just kind of had some fun in our little A-frame, started the school together and a couple other things. Um, but but that's that's not really what drew us together. It was kind of ministry because you were wanting to refocus your life and I wanted to learn more about management and kind of right. sharpened one another in that regard. Yeah, I had, um, I had really avoided being involved in, I, 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 Allie and I were involved in, especially in building that big uh, building where Oaks Christian and, and Calvary Community are. But um, as once Larry left, we, I really, uh, it had been a, we, we just really didn't want to, we were burned out on, on church management. But I really, we really had a heart still for ministry and we didn't know what we were supposed to do. And so it, you know, I think you and I just almost naturally started, you know, sharing 
you know, sort of dreams and things God's put, God put in our hearts. And of course, you had a million thoughts and a million ideas. Let's go this way, that way, this way. It drove, drove a lot of people crazy, but I always thought that was, that was energizing, right? And we did do some neat things. Yeah, I we mean, did. Uh, you know, we did a lot of really neat things. And, uh, you know, I look back on them. It's like some of them, well, I don't know, maybe they were deviations. Maybe we, maybe we, we, over, we stopped at a stopping point a little too long one time, or maybe we missed another <laughs> one. But I always see the long game. I yeah. always see where we really headed. And, you know, when I see what's happened to, especially your personal ministry and how the Lord's blessed the fellowship and the changes we've gone through, I just see all of that as the long view about how the Lord wants to use this, this fellowship and your giftings, and, you know, which are very unique for a pastor. And it's sort of neat to be part of it all. Well, I, when I look at what we did with Little Oaks trying to start that school, what it exposed us to, especially when we went down to San Diego and we saw that yeah. curriculum, we saw those kids reciting the Constitution and the Declaration of Singing songs. And singing songs. We went up to San Jose, saw another school very similar. And through our attempt to try to do that, we run into Beacon Hill. Yeah, exactly. And where your grandkids go and, you know, mine, mine go there. And, and looking at that and thinking... There it is. There it is. <laughs> I mean, but, but we would have never known what to right. look for had we not done what we did. Um, and, no, it's and so then funny. The, and then, yeah. of course, we have grandkids. Yeah. I got great grandkids. Yeah, and do. so you really, as your, as your family, you know, starts to expand and, you know, you'll see this uh, too, because you've got, you got a big family that will probably be a bigger family. You really want your ministry to include how your, not just your kids, but how your grandkids are, you know, are, are really equipped for the world they're inheriting. Yeah. And you view it as a more and more important part of your role. I, I do a terrible job at it, but my wife, her life is about how I'm going to be, make sure that these grand, that, that we always say we don't, we don't like to trust the, the um, educating of our, of our grandkids to our kids. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. I, uh, I, I, want, I, I think, you know, with the time we have tonight, I, I don't want to miss the opportunity because you, you just really are a wealth of knowledge in regards to a topic that a lot of people don't know a ton about, but it affects their world immensely. And I can't think of anyone better to speak to that. And, and quite honestly, you could literally... You, you could be a consultant to the president to give him a, 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 an unbelievable insight and over, uh, over, uh, overview of the entire health industry. Um, how, do, how, do we, how would you explain it to all the folks out there, to the, uh, putting the cookies on the bottom shelf? Give us an understanding of really what we're facing as a nation where healthcare is gone, what we're looking at, regardless, I mean, we're a handful of days away from the election, but, but what are we looking at? And, and, and what is healthcare in America today? And take it, just do your best. Well, well we, have, we have, like everything, we've politicized healthcare like we've, um, probably more than we've politicized a lot of other industries. Um, and it's not just the United States, it's a natural instinct for governments to say, this is a, this is a problem that I can fix. And no one's ever really pulled it off. And unlike almost any other part of our life, there's very few things that have such diseconomics associated with them. You know, you and I, um, you might really like cars. I could, yeah, you don't like cars. You're like me. We could care less about a car. But we go shopping for a car. We buy something that has utility value. Yeah. And my wife, if she were, you know, when she goes and buys a car, she, she's, got a, she's got some styling going on there, right? Yeah. But there's a car and a price for all of us. And when we settle on what we want to purchase for a, as a car, we're good with it, right? I mean, I, I uh, you know, there, there's people that would say, it's not like every American says, I should be entitled to drive a Bentley and somebody else should pay for it. 
I can't think of any other part of our, of, of our world economy where somebody says they should be entitled to buy a different version of what they can buy and somebody else should pay for it. We don't do this with our auto insurance. We don't say somebody else should pay for our car insurance. We don't like buying it. Uh, we don't say that about our homeowner's insurance. But we say it about our health insurance for some reason. We also don't buy um, car insurance hoping somebody that we get in an accident or hoping somebody steals our car or hoping our house burns down so we get our money's worth out of our insurance. Right. We don't hope we die so we get a payoff on our life insurance. Right. It's kind of weird. Let me, let me, let me throw uh, a curveball at you from a layman's point of view and, and probably out of just sheer ignorance. But why do you need the, the insurance industry in healthcare? I mean, why can't I just go to a doctor? Why can't I just go to a hospital? Why do I need a middleman who's going to take a portion of that Help, help everybody understand that. Is that a fair enough question? It's a, it's a great question, and it's, the answer to the question has changed over the years. Yeah. So, uh, you know, when I was young, there was almost no health insurance. There was only, as a matter of fact, there was no health insurance as we know it today. What existed up until the mid, uh, early 80s was something that was called hospitalization. And so you, you paid your doc, everyone in America that, that could afford to, um, paid their doctor or they settled with their doctor personally. And very, very poor people. There was an element of Medicaid even back then, but you, it's not very far back that you have to go before there was not even Medicaid. You paid for your, for your doctor visits. If you had to get a prescription, you paid for them. And in the rare chance that you got hospitalized, which was really rare, you'd have insurance that would kick in after, you know, a week's wait. You pay the first week's wages towards your, a hospital and you'd settle with the hospital through insurance. It was not part of the healthcare system. Yeah. Then uh, we went through a period that was created probably by the industries, right, themselves, you know, good old-fashioned America. And um, there was a value that said, if you buy insurance, we will get you hospital and other services at a discounted rate. That was when HMOs and PPOs came in. And for a while, it was true. You could get, uh, you know, your cost of being hospitalized would be a half or, 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 or a quarter of what it would cost you if you didn't have insurance. And we, then that became like an incentive for businesses that they would provide. Oh, that yeah, because I, I, now, I now can provide access to world-class medical care at a fraction of what you, could, you would have to pay for it if you bought it on your own. And that was the answer to the question, why do we need insurance? Why don't I just go get it myself? Well, most Americans were not willing to go into a hospital and say, all right, um, here's what I'm willing to pay you and negotiate. They could have, but nobody was willing to do it. That is all, really all passed. Now, the system is still in place, but the reason for it is largely gone. And there's a big, there's something very big that's going to happen on January 1st of next year. It's called, it's referred to as the transparency movement. And this administration really forced this through. And, and, really and, and forced this isn't this something that, that the insurance industry is thrilled about. Uh, the hospital industry hates it. The insurance industry hates it. Everyone hates it because the winner is going to be the consumer. And, and, and you, as the CEO of a healthcare, you know, you're, you're being candidly honest. I I'm mean, being this, candidly this is honest. not good for your business. Well, it is good if you address the business in a, in, in a way that believes that what's good for the consumer is ultimately good for Fair you. Fair enough. So we've designed a solution. And that's always been your heart. You're an yeah, honest man. You're yeah, an yeah. honest man. So you just got to gotta go at it with saying what's right. And the idea of people hiding the true cost of healthcare from patients and employers and purchasers and each other and playing games with various hospitals and, you know, my deal's better than your deal, but I won't let you see it. All of that's going to be gone. I, I just went to get an MRI. Yeah. It was required for the stomach thing I was dealing with. One place was exorbitant. The other place was okay. And then another place was like, 
what, what, are they going to you know, do a wand or something? I mean, is a machine broken? <laughs> and it was the same quality care yeah, yeah. It, for like a fourth of the price. So, so why, as consumers, would we put up with that? We yeah. recognize that the difference between a day in the hospital at some name brand hospital and a really well-equipped regional hospital, the quality of care, everything about that care, and everything about what's going to be done for you is going to be identical. And yet this one is five times as much as that. And yet nobody will tell you that up front. You can't see it. Well, January 1 forward now as a result of the final you know, legal um, judgments on this, we're going to be able to see the cost of the top 300 procedures at every hospital in the United States across every insurance company. So it's going to reveal, does Aetna have a better deal than Cigna, than Blue Shield of California, than HealthNet, than Tufts in you know, Boston? Everyone will know that. And there will be an industry that will grow up overnight that will say, I'll reduce this to the best choice for you. Now, what's that do with doctors? And, and, because it used to be that if you wanted to be wealthy in this country, you become a doctor. And now, it, it, I mean, they do well, but they don't do like they used to do. They, and, and even when I was interviewing to do medical sales, when I was doing consumer product sales, and I was looking at Boston Scientific and Johnson & Johnson, yeah. and, and the, that industry of sales, you could make an unbelievable fortune. And then, you'd, you know, you'd be able to take the doctors out to lunch, and then they'd buy your product, and, you know, you had these junkets, and, and then I'll just Samples. Got, yeah, samples. <laughs> and you just got wiped out. And, yeah. and even, even the medical sales industry is struggling. Doctors aren't doing nearly as well as they used to. What's it going to do to the regular doctor? Will we have doctor? People still want to go into the industry? Because you're putting eight, ten years of education to receive far less than what you would have years ago. And is this pushing towards socialized medicine, uh, which I don't want? Yeah. I, first of all, if you look at the surveys of physician salaries across specialties, specialists still make a lot of money. And surprisingly, while there may have been some compression, you don't see a huge amount of compression there. There's been an enormous compression in what we think of as the, the core um, you know, part of medical care when we were young, which is primary Primary physician, primary, physicians. primary care, primary care. Your local primary care doc—they're almost gone. They're almost extinct. And so, unfortunately, what it does is it drives most um, uh, medical school students into specialties, as opposed to into the practice of primary care. Primary care will get reinvented. I, I really believe we'll see that in the next few years. It may be similar to what has happened with um, psychiatry, where you see psychiatrists really not doing a whole lot of counseling, but you see paraprofessionals that come up and are willing to do that work, and they got a better economic model. And so are you going to see physician's assistants yeah. doing the primary care? You see a lot of that. You're going to see technology. I work for a tech company, so I know what's down, what's coming. That's going to really, really um, radically um, improve the ability to do diagnostic care um, without having to have a medical degree, being supervised. A physician can supervise a whole you know, swarm of people that are doing that kind of work. We'll probably get better diagnostics and better primary care with a model that's able to deliver units of care much cheaper. You know, there's no reason why what we're starting to see in infancy, storefront you know, care and all of that, you know, eventually be pretty good. Now, interesting in the insurance industry, medical insurance industry, as we've gone through this pandemic with COVID-19 and the, the median age of the victims is in the 70s with comorbidities. And these comorbidities are usually diabetes, which is over yeah. in, in not all cases, but mostly because of being overweight. That um, usually smokers, so they have lung issues. And so the insurance industry has had to subsidize bad lifestyles. And now 
this is, you know, and, and I don't know where you are in regards to this. And, you know, people would throw it out as conspiracy theory. Nowadays, conspiracy theory to me is just anyone who challenges the narrative. <laughs> Anything. Yeah. But, but you, you have Bobby Kennedy Jr. who's taking on Big Pharma. And his comment is everyone's getting vaccinated. And, and then, you know, that is a, a big industry money-wise. But the biggest part of that is the ancillary side where these people are so adversely affected by these untested vaccines that they're able to sell them products down the line as they're being decimated with autism and a number of other things. Um, will, will we ever look at healthcare as making people healthy and, and focus on that as opposed to, you know, indulge in anything you want and we're all going to pay for it? Yeah, Is there so, a mindset there? You know, really, you, you raised a lot of good points. So uh, at, at the primary end, we've got to separate the financing of health care, insurance, you know, credit, credit cards, all of that. The ways we pay for health care and the systems that have been created in this country to help pay for health care. We've got to separate that industry, which has lots of problems and, and is in the throes of a radical transformation. And we're going to see a, we're going to see a lot of that go away over the next few years. Then you talk about health care itself. Health care is influenced by medical schools, by traditional training, by, new, by, by the advent of technologies that um, are, have, have resulted in longer life, uh, longer life for, uh, um, for not just Americans, but people all over the world, but also a whole lot more people that are living with chronic, really serious chronic conditions. A lot of that's the effect of our ability to, to keep people alive longer. It's very, very expensive. So you've got all this going on, and then you've got things like technology, as I was saying, uh, virtual technology, direct technology, is going to really improve our ability to diagnose people far earlier, before they even have symptoms. Um, and, you know, wrestling with privacy and other issues that might even allow us to more understand our predisposition to certain things and be able to intervene even before you know, before they keep them from even occurring. So you've got technology that is radically going to improve health care itself. And um, uh, it's going to change the roles of people. The problem is that our system of health care was designed years ago. The, these very narrow specialties that compete with other specialties. Surgeons compete with um, uh, radiologists for the same patient. You know, there was a time when the way you treated, uh, you know, chest pain and, and sweating was you crack open the heart and, you know, you, you do open heart surgery. Now a radiologist can put something, you know, you know, in your vein and cure it, you know, without ever a cardiologist being involved. Yeah. And that's a big fight. So the system, we don't ever talk about these in political terms, the fact that the healthcare delivery system itself has its own problems. It's got competition between doctors and drug companies, between those that cure and those that um, improve health, between the questions of lifestyle and, you know, fix you when you leave a, live a lousy lifestyle. But these are going to have to be dealt with. These are really going to have to be dealt with if we're going to be able to afford, you know, the kind of life we're entitled to live. Will the transparency that the president has put forward, will that reduce the power of big pharma and, and the way that they drive healthcare? So it will reduce the power of big insurance companies. It will reduce the power of big hospital systems. 
first, and it will reduce the power of big drug companies. It will reveal also the gaps that are, you know, that, that we believe that all of the money is being spent in the sort of in, in, intermediary roles. There is money being spent in the intermediary roles, but that's true of everything. I mean, you say, you could say, well, why do we have grocery stores? Why don't we just buy directly from food manufacturers? Well, because we actually need some of that organized for us. Um, but there, there's elements of cost and waste in all of it. And there's not a knee-jerk answer, but for sure, transparency is going to reveal how... Transparency is always good. Always good. How can it ever be bad? Now, with... And, and, and I'm not a Luddite. And for anyone who wonders what a Luddite is, it's someone who's afraid of technology. I'm not afraid of technology. And most people think, you know, big tech, big olig- uh, tech oligarchies, yeah, they're, they're abusing a gift that I, I believe God's given. And... It all depends on who's overseeing it because technology is, is good or bad depending on who's overseeing it. Yeah. And those, that's just human beings. And, and they can always awaken and have a change of heart and start to realize these things for the benefit of man. But if it's manipulative, and I look at with this, this pandemic with COVID-19, you know, you have frontline doctors who, who have clear data that they've presented and they're completely erased and taken off of the internet, big tech wipes them out. You know, I, I mean, I, you, you've heard me talk of it. And, and it's, it's one of these things where these doctors don't want to stand because the, the system is so structured that you get shut down. And if yeah. you get removed from the insurance industry as, as a doctor, you're, you're pretty much out of luck. Yeah, yeah. You're done. And these doctors want to join the front line, but they're saying, I can't afford to lose everything I have. So how, how do you find innovation when you're paralyzed by fear? So, um, I, I mean, more people would be alive if... Well, look, I, you, you know, know where I, I'm going. Yeah, so, so I am running a healthcare company that is owned by one of those big companies, yeah. big tech companies. So I see, I see all sides of it. And, you know, in some ways, uh, you know, as a believer, I'm, I'm, I'm inside the lion's den, but I also see the guts of the inside too. Yeah. And, and they're people. Well, there's people there. They're, of course they're people, but not surprisingly, there are people that are quite a bit younger than me. They have been indoctrinated, you know, unfortunately, uh, largely by a, a very different, you know, uh, um, set of of principles than I was as I grew up. Just yeah. very different. They, they went to school, got their education in a system we abdicated a long time ago as believers that has no worldview of absolutes and no understanding of a designer or a creator. And now they're running companies. Well, and there's a, there's a, there is a sense, see, see where, where our instinctive reaction is that, that the citizen is big, the government is small. And we, and we inherently get that, that, that freedom comes from that. They come from a place where all answers come down from the, uh, from, you know, how would they put it? They put it from intelligence and, and needs to be imposed on people who are not able to understand it. People are just, they're just not smart enough. They're not smart enough. And, 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 and do think about them. it. They come from the place where their, their, their entire um, product line is very technical and very complicated, Right. 
Like I'm an engineer, you know, and, and so, uh, but the kind of engineer I am is useless today. But back at the time, if I was going to sit down with you and say, I want to explain to you how a transistor works, I'd really struggle for the words to use, right? Yeah, and, and I, I wouldn't even be able to comprehend anything you're saying. Now, if I'd say, how does a transistor work? A today's engineer would say, what's a transistor? Yeah. <laughs> right? I can tell you how an instruction works. <laughs> but anyway, so I, I, I do have this sense that they have a completely different view of the role of how things get done. And they get done because knowledge is translated by large institutions to people who consume um, and don't have to know. And I don't know that anybody would ever say it that way, but you really get a sense that they really believe that. And so this idea of my personal views uh, on things have value, it, 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 um, it's, it's, it's bumped up against the, you know, the idea, well, there's a known book of knowledge. You're, you're either... You either fit that or you don't. So it's odd. I, I don't have that argument with a lot of them uh, unless, it bumps, uh, unless it runs up against a business mandate that I have. And so I have plenty of those disagreements. Yeah. <laughs> but they're mostly about I've got to make a healthcare. I've got to recreate a healthcare world that's going to solve the problems you talked about. Right. That's going to allow physicians to actually participate without having to join anything. They're not going to have to sign a contract with some big company that controls what they do. They put their wares out there like any other source, and people either come and use them or not based on the value and the price of what they do. That's the world I'm trying to create using the technology that's coming out of these companies. This is, this is I mean, we're limited on time because we, we're, we're trying to keep the programs, and, and I, p- folks may or may not like it, but we try to keep them around 30 minutes. Yeah. We, we've been doing an hour, but our, our viewer time is about yeah. 30 minutes, and we just don't we want people to get the full deal. So... Uh, let's do this in the last few minutes because when I've talked about the ecclesia, which is the public square where ideas are manifested, people work to improve their community. Jesus said, upon this rock, I'll build my ecclesia. Of course, we've relegated it to the word church and, and, and the church is no longer in the public square. I can't think of a better illustration than what's in front of me right now that if we really want to change the world for the power of, of good, you have to find yourself at the highest levels of industry, bringing with you the presence of Christ, the, the Christian worldview, to contend for the technology that's being revealed. It's either going to be used for good or evil. But you will never be in a place to make those decisions unless you've done the hard work to sit in the seat you sit in. And so to, to move to Montana and build a bunker and wait for the end of the world does nothing for humanity. And, and I, I want people to see that across from me is a man who is a CEO of a healthcare company of one of the major tech companies in the world. I can even say more. And then it was, yeah. And, <laughs> one and that you use every day. Every day. <laughs> and, and you sit here with the ability to speak in to the future of that technology. I, and, and I'll leave it with this and then comment on it if you would. I had a friend who's, who still is. He's, he's with DevGru, SEAL team. He's, he's up there in the, in, the, in the, and he said, he was telling, telling me, you know, kind of what we're facing as dangers as, as a nation, militarily speaking, and what his job is to do with the Admiral of DevGru and the brass there. And, and I said, man, seems like technology is just going evil. And he said, technology is not evil. It's inanimate. Mm, it's what it. you do with technology. Yeah. And, and I, that, that just hit me. He's there making decisions critical as a believer you're here making decisions critical as a believer, dealing with technology. That's not to be af- something afraid of. 
It's what you do with it. So talk about that, maybe. You know, and it, it, absolutely right. So, so there's a lot of raw technology that's been created by these companies. They, they found a win early on, and they've all become very big. And they're desperately looking to leverage the, um, uh, the, kind, the things they've created for broader uses. But they don't really know how to apply things beyond what they originally done. If you've either created a, you know, a mobile device or you've created a search engine, you know, you're really good at that. And you know that it's allowed you to apply that to other things, but you're not very good at figuring out what it is. So they, they, at this point, many of them are, are hungry for industry people of every, in every industry that have really done real things, commercialized real things for real buyers, real consumers, real employers, real, you know, et cetera. And they're desperately looking for people that know how to translate that into real use. So, so there's a place for all of us uh, in that. And you're absolutely right on that. I, I think as a, as a believer, I, I don't know why I'm back working again. I, I, I've tried to retire three times and failed. But like you, I, <laughs> I do think there's this constant God's drawing us to, yeah. to the thing that he really intended all along. And we're just, we're just slow to get there maybe. Well, you know, Denny, I look at you and, and, and even myself. At, you know, at 56, you're, you're kind of getting it ready for the next generation. And, but I've, I've, I feel like I've hit my stride. And I look at you and I go, man, he's really hit his stride. Because this is probably one of the most significant opportunities in the entirety of your life, yeah. what God has given to you. And at this stage in your life, you still physically are you know, probably not as you know, spry as you were, but intellectually, you're on it. And all of that wisdom has culminated to this point. And, and I'm finding myself right now able to articulate things I could have never have done when I was younger. Now, granted, I'm still excited about the next generation taking over. I want them to, but I want to leave them something worth taking over. And, and I see that with you, and I, it blesses me. You know, I had two, two other observations, and one we didn't get a chance to talk about today. Maybe, maybe we'll do this another time. But we are going to do this again. The Affordable, you're, you're, you're Care Act, very popular. the Affordable Care Act fight has been a mischaracterized fight, and it's worth another time for us to do this. People should not worry if that gets repealed by the federal you know, government. Let's, let's, do it right, let's do it right now. We'll, we'll go a little long. I, I really want to hear this. Talk about it. So um, it's an unnatural act for the federal government to be involved in insurance at all. It, uh, the McCarran-Ferguson Act, which was pay, passed in 1945, gave the sole discretion for all insurance to the states. And there was a really good reason for it. Car insurance, auto insurance, life insurance, health insurance. So when the Affordable Care Act was created, it had to overcome, and it's been tested at the Supreme Court and upheld, five to nothing, uh, nine to nothing, uh, years ago. So they had to deal with this problem. This is not our jurisdiction. How do we do it? And the result is a law that has the most complicated uh, ways of cobbling together mechanisms for the federal government to force the, all 50 states and, the DC, and D.C. to pass state laws to make the Affordable Care Act work. So the question of where is the, I wrote an article once on where is the Affordable Care Act? It's in the states. It's in state law. It took three years for all the states to rewrite their state insurance laws to create protections for pre-existing conditions, kids being on their parents' policies until 26. All those things, uh, the, uh, the end of lifetime limits, end of annual limits, all that stuff is in state law. If the Affordable Care Act was repealed in the federal government today, nothing would change. 
We get rid of some federal employees. We get rid of a lot of federal bureaucracy. But there's this worry, you know, and I know it's political. And and you know, for the the folks that we're probably supporting, you know, we 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 think it shouldn't have been there from the beginning. There were some good things that happened, but they work because they're state laws. And if a state decides to change that, they can pass the law and they can change it. And every state can do what they choose to do. But under the ACA now, they can't change that. They can't today. The states can't do it today. They can't do it today. And that's so th- what needs to change. And that's, what, that's why this will be, that's one of the reasons why this fight is there. Yeah. Is because the federal government attempted to use tax law to force an influence of state law. And that's not how this federal, no. th- this, th- our federal system works. That's abusive. Fascinating. All right, you're coming back, yeah? Yeah. All right. Well, uh, Denny Weinberg, a storehouse of brilliant knowledge, although he would disagree because he's humble. But I have to tell you, this man has been a great blessing to my life, and I want to have him back on the program. And if you have questions pertaining to healthcare, the industry itself, some of the stuff you heard tonight, uh, send them in, info at godspeak.com, and we'll have you back on, and we'll, we'll answer those questions. But fascinating. Thanks. You get a bump. Yeah. <laughs> so good to see you. Bless you, everybody. We're going to close tonight with the reading of the blessing out of Numbers, which we do every night. And so this is for you all. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. And may the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. The same peace you received, the same peace I received. Amen. It's the Lord who brings it. So I wish that for all of you. Thanks for joining us tonight. We'll see you tomorrow night. God bless you all.